All right, we are on the last study of the last, the last week of the study on, on Christology, the Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We are, we've gone through and looked at his pre-incarnate and the incarnation itself and his sinless life. Uh, we are really on the back page now, uh, page 16, looking at his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and return. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on the return to earth. Uh, we're going to be handling that at the end of our, of our essential doctrines when we get to this. But it is there uh, for you to see. We're going to have last things as the last study here and uh, move along through that. So let's go ahead and begin with uh, number six on your, thing, on your schedule there. Jesus died to pay the penalty for the sins of all people. Any discussion on that statement? Jesus died to pay the penalty for the sins of all people. Everyone like that? You're good with that? Just want to make sure. Um, this is a very strong statement uh, that that penalty has been paid. That is propitiation, that we have paid the penalty for sin. Atonement is the covering of sin. That word really is engaged there as well. But we talk about his death as paying the penalty of sin, that he died in our stead. And the passage that we could look at is Romans 5, uh, verses 6 and following. Uh, we, of course, have Isaiah 60, 53, but in Romans 5 and then into chapter 6. Let's go ahead and turn there so that we have a good understanding of this. We did get into this a little bit last week, but we want to start off there before we get to the resurrection. So Romans 5. Of course, the big question is the last part of that phrase that is Jesus died for the sins of all people. Uh, limited atonement of the Calvinist tulip, the middle part of it, the L, is limited atonement, says that Jesus Christ only died for the elect's sin. So he didn't die for all sinners, but only for the sins of those that are chosen by God in eternity past. And so when we say Jesus Christ died for all sin, he has provided that for all. Now there is an intermediate part that a lot of three-point Calvinists and four-point Calvinists use because most of them have a problem with the L in the tulip. So if you encounter a four-point Calvinist, they'll say, well, yeah, Jesus Christ, and here's their statement. Jesus Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for all, but efficient only for the elect. And that sounds really bright, doesn't it? It is sufficient for all. He died for all the sin of all men, there's enough payment that has been made for the sin of all men, but it's only effectual for the ones that God has chosen in eternity past. And so they don't believe in limited atonement. It's usually, the if you jump from a five-point to a four-point Calvinist, it's usually the L they have a problem with. And, and this statement tells you that we're definitely not uh, a five-point Calvinist. So a five-point Calvinist would immediately pick up on this and say, oh, you believe he died for the sins of all people. Um, and, then, and if that's the first introduction they had, which is what a lot of times the study was used, they were in for a lot more before it was all over with when we talk about the doctrine of salvation that Jesus Christ, in fact, died for all people and all, invites all people to be saved. So it is sufficient for all, and it is efficient not just for the elect, but for all who would trust in him. It is for all people. It is made available to all people. 
And by the way, it is dishonest to call yourself a four-point or three-point Calvinist, or two-point or one-point for that matter, um, because they're all interdependent. All five points are interdependent. You, as long as you hold the one, you've got to hold all of them, because they're that interli- interlinked to one another. And so, um, let's go to Romans chapter 5. And again, one of the questions that we keep asking about, that we discussed already last week, was about, did Jesus, uh, how does it, has everyone enjoyed some of the benefits of Jesus Christ's death? We talk about the second Adam, but let's back up. So we looked at the verses 17 and following uh, last week. We talked about the fact that all men are recipients, uh, are benefactors of the death of Christ because he is the second Adam, and so he has paid the penalty for original sin, or I don't even like that term, inherited sin. So Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for all men's inherited sin. So none, no one, no one on the earth will be spending eternity in the lake of fire because they are born a sinner. Does not mean they were born innocent. It means that they were born forgiven. The the payment was made because the second Adam covered everyone touched by the first Adam's sin. So that is in verses 17 and following. But let's back up and look at the other facets of Christ's death uh, by going back to verse 6. So let's go ahead and read this. It says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the elect. Is that what it says? For the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Uh, For if we were enemies, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life, which we're going to take us into the next point of resurrection. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so I wanted to start there to understand that we see no evidence in any writing that God did some unique work in us to enable us to believe that Jesus Christ offers to all men, while you were sinners, while you were his enemy, you could be reconciled. He is offering salvation to sinners. He is offering salvation to his enemies, not to his chosen few, but to all men. And so we have this ministry of reconciliation now placed upon us that we take the gospel to all men. Uh, because Christ died for all of them and invites all men everywhere. And so this is the, the desire of God. This is the purpose. He paid the penalty for the sin for all men. This is how he showed his love for us. And again, uh, you can contend, well, he's only talking about the elect in these verses, but he's very clearly saying that there is a difference between the righteous and the ungodly. All right, and so... Uh, If you know Romans, Romans had already talked about in chapter 2 and 3 about the self-righteous person, the Jewish person, the person who thinks they're a pretty good person. Uh, Well, uh, maybe you would die for good people, but that's not who Jesus died for. Jesus died for ungodly people. 
He died for his enemies, not those that were kind of seeking after him and were just kind of in the dark, who had, an, uh, had some spark in them that God had placed in them that they wanted to find God. No, Jesus Christ died for his enemies, those that hated him. And that's who he wants to bring into reconciliation. And so we have a distinguishment here in these verses between sinners and righteous people which is really just the development of what we've seen in Romans 1, 2, 3, uh, and 4. We come to chapter 5, having established that all men are sinners, whether you are um, self-righteous, whether you are on the other end of the scale where your conscience is seared with a hot iron, uh, in Romans 1, 19, that area, and 19, 20, 21. And so we talk about uh, the worst end and the, and the best end, and every one of them is in the same bowl of soup. They're all in trouble. Whether you're at the good end or the evil end, you're a sinner and you're lost without Jesus Christ. All sin falls short of the glory of God, Romans 3. And it is for them that Jesus Christ died, not just for a few. And uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as well. And this should be a familiar passage to you. But I, I want to add that in. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're listed with 21, but I want to back up and look at a couple of other verses. Focusing on this word reconciliation that we saw in Romans 5. Let's back up to verse 18. It says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling who? The elect to himself? The world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we as ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so this idea of reconciliation is to go out there, find people who are your enemies, the enemies of Jesus Christ, and bring them to God. That is the point. It's not to go out and find those that the Spirit has already done a work in them so that they recognize they have a need for the Savior. And No. This is about going out to your enemies, going out to those that are all throughout the world uh, that God wants to deliver. And so we have a uh, reconciling God in Christ Jesus, reconciling the entire world to himself. And again, I believe this is pointing to the universal application of Christ's blood as the second Adam, that all men have their inherited sin forgiven, uh, paid for, and that we have the payment has been made for everyone else's sin. There is sufficient, uh, and it is available to any who would accept it. Christ Jesus has already paid the price for all the world's trespasses. He's already paid the price for all of them. Whether or not they will partake of it is their choice. He has paid the price for that, but the application of that still has to be made. We're going to talk a lot more about that when we get to the next study in, in salvation. Is that the next study? Yes. Uh, in the doctrine of salvation. And that you have to accept that payment. And so it's a gift. 
but he has paid for the gift for all people. And so if I went out there and paid for a gift for each one of you and had them up here on a table and said, these are all bought and paid, uh, and, I, and I invite you to take one home with you, uh, and if you go out the door and, and don't pick one up, does that mean I didn't pay for it? Does that mean it wasn't available? No, it's on you, not on me. So Jesus Christ has reconciled the world to himself. He has paid for the trespasses of the world. He has paid, made the payment for the world and it is now for them to, re, to respond by faith, accepting it. But his payment is for the world. For he who knew no sin became, uh, he who knew no sin uh, made sin for us. He was made sin. Uh, and that, again, we talked about last week, right? How could a perfect God become sin? And we talked about that as part of the incarnation. How could a perfect God become man? How could he become limited to that degree? And this is the extent by which God can control himself. is to such a point that he can become even sin, even though he is holy, holy, holy. He could become sin. And so he became sin. When did he become sin? For you. On the cross. When on the cross? We know the exact time. Exactly. Right. So we know the exact time he became sin for you. So if you look in, in my New King James Version, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Um, I really don't like the words to be uh, because they imply that maybe that's some future thing. Uh, you notice that they're in italics because they're not in the Greek. He made him who knew no sin, sin. He made him to be sin. And, and the idea is, is to that that's, it happened back there, not when you get saved. Jesus Christ doesn't become sin for you when you get saved. He became sin for all men on the cross. He paid the penalty for the sin, not just of those who would get saved, but for all men. He paid for all men's sin on the cross. And so, when we talk about the sufficiency of Christ, it is sufficient for all men. He paid the penalty for all of them. And thus the whole world their sin, all the sin of the world has been paid for when Jesus became sin on the cross. How can a holy, holy God become sin? That is, a, that, that just helps us to grasp what it means for the God to humble himself and become a servant even to the cross. And so, when was the payment received for sin? When he arrived in heaven, uh, I would say earlier than that. When he was raised from the dead, okay, you've made the penalty, you've paid the penalty, you were righteous, and now God raised him from the dead to give him victory over death. So he, he paid for our sin by dying. The payment, I believe, was accepted by God at the resurrection, and it was applied on our behalf at the ascension. Okay? That's where it, it was applied in heaven at the ascension. But in terms of it being accepted by God, saying that's sufficient uh, payment, was the resurrection. 
God says, that payment's been made, and now we have life, which brings us to the next point. Any questions on that, that? All right, let's go on to point number seven. Jesus came back to life in three days. This is the resurrection, and uh, so you're in 2 Corinthians. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Uh, that's uh, chapter 15, and, and we had that listed under number six as well. Uh, but let's look at this. And uh, really, we could read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 and into chapter uh, 16 even, uh, if we wanted to. But, uh, oh no, not 16. 15 is a long chapter. That's why I always think I'm into two chapters. Uh, so we have all of chapter 15 really dealing with the resurrection. So if we don't have a resurrection, we are pitiful. But let's look at the beginning of this chapter. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Those are some very powerful words we got to talk about in the next study, starting next week. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's what we just studied. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas and by the twelve. That he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, I was seen by James and by all the apostles. And last of all, I was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, I'm not worthy to be called apostles because I persecuted the church of God. And we'll stop there. And we get into the, he's going to further explore the resurrection. We jump down later in the chapter, verse 12 and following. So we come to this and we see the, this is the gospel. And that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, rose again on the third day, and is ascended. And this is the, uh, that he was seen, this is witnessed. These were witnessed, and why was this important? Uh, because if this is not your gospel, you believed in vain. And, and this is the power of the payment. The payment is to pay for the, our sin, and we know from Romans 6.23, what is the payment for sin? Death. Okay, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Christ made the payment, it was accepted, and so now we have resurrected life uh, in Christ Jesus, and so we have the power of sin broken. And that's what we have listed. Jesus has power over sin and death. So because the power over sin was broken, the power over death is broken because death is the result of sin. And so if you take out the prior, the, the cause... The cause of death is sin. If you address the cause, the effect goes away. And so we have the opportunity to dismiss the cause, which is sin, and now we can anticipate eternal life in the resurrection through Jesus Christ. And we have some other passages there as well. I want to pick out the last one in Psalm 16. Some people say, well, this is just a New Testament idea or concept but psalm 16 of course tells us very differently that even back here god knew that there would be a resurrection psalm 16 verse 9 we'll pick up um, therefore my heart is glad my glory rejoices my flesh also rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in shield nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption 
You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In this prophetic psalm about this holy one of God that will not be allowed to see corruption or rotting, that there will be a resurrection, that they will not be left in Sheol. And so we find the resurrection there. Um, any comments or applications that you would like to? What does that mean to you? The death, burial, resurrection. Quiet group tonight. Don't have to be pitied. Why? Yeah, if there's no resurrection, you're pitiful. You believe in resurrection. You're as pitiful as the Hindus who believe in reincarnation. That's, I, I pity them. If there, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then we're, we're wasting our time. You have to. Yeah, and, that, and Paul makes that very clear in verses 1 and 2. If you don't have this, you don't have salvation at all. But you have it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ did happen. Has not been able to be refuted. And is a reality. And so we have a sure hope. And I always have to use the word sure with hope in the, in the modern English because uh, we've made hope into wishful thinking and that's not what hope is in the Bible. Hope is a strong, confident position. Um, and so we say, well, I hope so. It means maybe it will, maybe it not. But that's not historically what the word means. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's a sure confidence. We have a sure confidence of life. Good. Any others? We can at least say amen. I'm, I'm, my sins are gone and my, the payments are made and we have eternal life to look forward to. Okay, let's go on to the third aspect. And we just did a message on this several, about a month ago, uh, on the ascension, number eight, often left out of a lot of um, descriptions uh, and studies, but Jesus' ascension is very important, and we see it there in John 14, we've studied that, I'm going to my Father, uh, and it's better for you that I go to my Father than remain here with you. So we are in a superior position because of the ascension than the apostles. So stop wishfully thinking that you were walking around on earth with Jesus because you have a better position than the apostles did. And Jesus Christ himself said that in John 14, 2 and 3. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 20 through 23. My new Bible still doesn't turn to where I want it to as fast. It's just not broke in well. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 says, well, we have, we're in the middle of a sentence, but the sentence goes all the way back to verse 15. So, <laughs> which he worked, that's the mighty power of God toward us who believe, uh, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. 
and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you see the, the positional benefit that we have because we have an ascended Lord? And so, yes, he raised him from the dead, first half of verse 20, but he also seated him at the right hand in, heaven, in the heavenlies. Far, and so he has that position of power. And that is the derivation of our walk with Christ. It is very important, and we are foolish to uh, not give it the place that it deserves in our understanding of the work of Christ, that he is today at the right hand of the Father in the position of power over all principalities, over all things, both present and things to come, uh, of, of all kinds on our behalf. So when we pray to the Father in Jesus' name, we're praying in a position of power and authority. And that's what we want to focus in on. And this is what Jesus Christ meant in Matthew 28. It says, all authority has been given to me. So I'm getting ready to leave you because I'm going to take the position of authority. I'm, I'm not just resurrected, I'm ascending to a position of authority. And based upon that authority, you go out and be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You go be ministers of the reconciliation by the authority of Jesus in heaven on a throne. That's the, the authority place that we have. He sends the Holy Spirit. He mediates for us. And it is the authority by which we minister. And so I don't want to spend a, a lot of time, much more time on this, uh, because the message we had several weeks ago, unless you had some questions or comments on the ascension, Jesus Christ went back to heaven. Of course, we see that in uh, given the most information about that in Revelation 5. That's where you find the, mo the description of that occurring. Any others? Any questions, comments, applications? Yeah. Without, the, without his ascension, you have no Holy Spirit residing in you like you do. You have no access there. And on the podcast, you can't hear what Mr. Roberts just said, but is that we are in a better position because of the ascension of ascending the Holy Spirit that, that we're better. We're better off in this state of affairs than with Jesus, without Holy Spirit in us. To have, to have Jesus in a place of power and authority instead of in his humiliated state is better for us. Would you agree with that? Okay, Jesus Christ walked on earth, and that is extraordinary and wonderful. We don't discount that, but it is better. That is in a humiliated state, right? Because Philippians 2 says that, remember last week's study, he humbled himself, became a servant, so he took on human form. Being equal with God was not something to be grasped after. He became man. And so that was his humiliated condition. Um, we don't want that perpetuated. We want him in a place of authority. Then he sends the Spirit. Now we have the power of the Spirit within us. And we have our Savior in a position of authority and inheritance. And that is a much superior position to be in. I would much prefer that than to be walking around here with Jesus and not have him in a, a place of authority and not have the Holy Spirit within me. Look at how lost and confused 
most of the disciples were most of the time during the walking with Jesus. They were much superior after Pentecost in their confidence, in their walk, I mean, uh, and in their engagement with the world. Much better. Uh, most of the time through the Gospels, you find them confused, uh, misunderstanding, uh, wanting to make Jesus their king, looking for the wrong kind of kingdom, looking for a kingdom on earth instead of the kingdom of heaven, um, just lost, not really understanding the parables. They didn't understand none of that because they didn't have the Holy Spirit in them. And Jesus Christ was in his humiliated state. And so uh, we have a much better, much superior thing because of the ascension of Christ. Yes. The armor of God, Ephesians 1. Oh, Ephesians 6. In the book of Ephesians, the armor of God is at the end of that, of the book of Ephesians. Right, and so we, yeah, we have all of this, you know, what is the word of God? It's the sword of the spirit. It is the one part that isn't armor, and it doesn't belong to you. So the spirit's presence in you um, gives you access to God's word that you wouldn't have without him. Right? So the ascension makes that possible. And so you have the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith. Uh, and that is a, a shield is, a, is maneuverable, correct? Shield of faith is maneuverable. Uh, the breastplate is, is stationary. Helmet, stationary. Belt of truth, stationary. Uh, feet out of preparation of the gospel, peace, stationary things. The only thing maneuverable of our armor of God there is the shield of faith. And rightly should we be praying the prayer of the disciples, increase our faith, Lord. Um, this is something I can wield. Uh, the sword is the spirits to wield both for us and in us. <laughs> and in, in the ministry of the kingdom of God. Very good. Yes. All right. The, the statement was made that as the resurrection is essential for salvation, the, or the resurrection is essential for our salvation, you must believe that, that you also have to have the ascension for Christ to fulfill the role as our high priest uh, in heaven, the application of it in the temple of God in heaven. Remember, the temple on earth, the tabernacle on earth, was an image, a reflection of a pattern that was in heaven. So Moses was allowed to see the temple of God in heaven. It's referenced in, in Revelation multiple times that there's a temple in heaven, and so Jesus Christ is there as our high priest. And I would contend that that is exactly true, that it is essential. If you have an unascended Lord, he is not in the place of authority, and the blood sacrifice has not been applied. And that's why I take issue so strongly with people who come to Revelation 5 and says that's in the future. It hasn't happened yet, which is what I was taught uh, and is still being taught in all of our pre-mill, pre-trib schools, is that Revelation chapter 5 is future, which is describing the arrival of Jesus into the heaven and taking the place of authority. Well, that cannot be in the future. It must have been at his ascension, or we're in deep trouble. In, and also not only Revelation 5, but also Revelation 12. Okay, when war broke out in heaven. Well, that war isn't in the future. That war is in the past. How did they get victory? Over, by the blood of the Lamb. And so the blood of the Lamb had to reach heaven for our salvation to be completed from a 
from a heavenly perspective, from a divine perspective. So yes, it is an essential. You deny the ascension to power of our Lord, I think you're denying the, an essential nature of the gospel. Good. But let's go to number nine, the last on our list. I might get down on time tonight. As I said, we're not going to spend a lot of time on nine because we have a whole study on it, and that's the last study. Uh, but let's talk about Jesus Christ will return to earth. And let's go to Acts chapter 1, because we just dealt with the ascension. Let's talk about it what, right immediately after the ascension. Acts chapter 1. Let's back up to verse 9 so we can see the ascension and link it right into his return. So now when he had spoken these things, while they were watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So, um, we have the ascension of Jesus Christ, and of course the disciples are there, are there on, on, on the Mount Olivet, Mount of Olives, and are just standing there and saying, well, and some would contend that they were thinking, well, he said he'd be back. Again, why? Because they're somewhat confused. They're in that condition. They're in this state of, this, of, of not fully grasping the significance of what was going on. They would, and several of the New Testament writers say, we didn't understand this at the time, but later we remembered. God brought all the things he taught to their memory. How did he do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought into their mind perfect memory of every word Christ spoke. Okay, that's the benefit. And that, I, I love that benefit, especially as I get older. A memory of God's words. And so I, I, I tell people I really, really don't want to outlive my mind. And I think that's one of the things modern science is doing is it's helping our bodies to outlive our minds. And that's, I just don't want that to happen. I don't want to ever not remember God's word. But even when I'm dealing with people in Alzheimer's places, and I remember several that we go and visit them regularly, uh, that were part of this church before they passed away, and, uh, and how they loved talking about the things of God and singing hymns. They still remembered those. And this is, I think, one of the precious gifts of God. But I don't know how I got on that. Uh, but we, um, we have this reference to they're just being confused. They're just standing there on the Mount of Olivet. And the angel said, Jesus is going to come back just as you saw him leave. He'll come back. And what are we told in Thessalonians? How will he come? It says the clouds received him. What does Thessalonians say? He'll come in the clouds. He said he'll come through the atmosphere. So we're waiting for a cloudy day over the whole earth, right? One big cloudy day. Because that's to be cloudy everywhere. Or does that to be cloudy at the Mount of Olivet? Okay, so check your Israel forecast every day, and if it's sunny, you can kind of discount the Lord's return on that day, right? Yeah, <laughs> then you have to trust the forecast. So we need a camera at Mount Olivet pointing up so we can see if there's any clouds so we know whether Christ is coming today or not, right? Uh, he is coming through the atmosphere. He is physically going to come back. 
as you saw him physically go up, because he was a resurrected body, it was a new body but was, and resurrected, but it was physically removed and went up into the atmosphere. The clouds are referring to the atmosphere. Okay, that's very different than the heavens, which is uh, into when we get into the uh, firmament and then beyond the firmament, the presence of God, the abode of God, which interestingly has a, a, a sea of glass, a glassy sea uh, as its floor. And so we go through the firmament into the presence of God with the, with the sea of glass or glassy sea, and we find the abode of God. And so he'll be coming back in like manner as he left. And then we uh, find this is our hope, and this is what's supposed to be encouraging one another with these words, that Jesus Christ will come back. And he says, I go to my Father to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you into myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so those are the words the disciples were waiting upon, and the Two, we believe angels as men, but the dressed in white apparel uh, said, why are you waiting here? Uh, go get busy. He'll come back. You just have to be obedient to his command. Uh, and obviously, he's just told them to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Well, that certainly hadn't happened. Okay? And some people say, well, this is the place where we find imminence, and we're going to talk about that when we get to our last study. Any comments or questions on... The Lord coming back. He did promise and the, the return. Is this a Christian essential that Jesus Christ is coming back? Yeah. I would put it right up there with resurrection because if he's not coming back, then nothing he said was true because he said he would come back. Right. And we were warned about that. And what, what Mr. Ross said is that nothing has changed. You know, this is what people are saying. It's always, it's, it's always been the way it is. It's always been the past. And it will always be that way in the future. And that's not the Christian belief. The Christian belief is that the world had a very definite beginning not very long ago, uh, real, um, comparatively speaking. And will have a definite conclusion uh, in the very near future, uh, about at least a thousand, seven years from now. Okay, so that's a near future compared to what people are talking about. Of course, in our modern era, the world is going to end in, in 11 years. So you knew that, right? Or was it, is it 10 years now when they said that because of global warming that we will be, all be dead? Which, by the way, they told us in 1980 that it would happen in 2000. They opened us, told us in the 90s it would happen in 2010. They told us in 2000 it would happen in 2014. They told us in 2000. 10, that it was going to happen in 2016, and they told us in 2016 it was going to happen in 2021. Now they're telling us it's going to happen in 2030. Do you get the impression of what's going on? So it's not happening. What is going to happen is Jesus Christ is going to return after seven years of calamity, um, but the return in the air is before that. So there's a return in the air, in the clouds, where we'll meet him in the air, and then there will be a return to earth. Please notice what the disciples are waiting for, for him to return in the clouds. Okay? Uh, his return to earth uh, is seven years after that. So yes, contrary to what you have heard, I am a pre-seven-year guy. Okay? But the rapture any time before seven years of the outpouring of God's wrath. Yes? Do you know 
Maybe. Okay, um, you don't even want to get in that discussion with me, okay? Because my cosmetology is very different. I've already alluded to it tonight. So I believe the biblical description of the earth. That we are not flying through empty space, that we are stationary because we are on foundations, that the sun, moon, stars are moving, and that they are in the firmament in one place. And so that's, so I don't even, but light does bend, by the way. Light bends. It will be nighttime somewhere, for sure. It will be nighttime somewhere. And I can't see the sky above Jerusalem from here. So I'll agree with you on that. Um, but it says every eye will see him. And when you start thinking about that, every eye will see him. Uh, it's, it's, God can do that. God can do that, and he can do it. And if, if it's a concern to you, just remember that how your, how your um, fiber optics work. What are fiber optics? What are they doing with fiber optics? What is a fiber optic? It's a light in a tube that goes like this. We can bend light all over the place. So we already know the light can bend, right? You knew that. Not just reflect, not mirror, but truly bend. You can bend light all over the place. Right? Water bends light. Right? When you look down and you see your hand, and now it looks like your hand's disconnected from your arm because some of it's in the water, that's light bending. So God can bend light to have every eye see Jesus Christ. From wherever you are, even if it's at night. If it's at night, I think it's going to be more spectacular than during the day. So, yes. See, I don't think I need an iPhone or a TV station to see Jesus Christ coming in the clouds. I think it's going to be, every eye, is, every eye will see him come. Good. I think we're going to know, yeah, the description, my understanding of the sixth seal is that we will all be outside. Because of the calamity that's described there, it's going to make everybody run out of your buildings. You're going to be getting out of buildings because of the calamity of the sixth seal. Uh, when you look at that, you're going to be running out, and then it says that every, after the sixth seal, that at the conclusion of that is when every eye, kings of the earth, will be startled by seeing Jesus coming in the clouds and, of course, we're going to be received into his sight at that point, uh, but they're going to go and try to hide in caves and ask the mountains to fall on them, is the description there. And also in Matthew 24. And so, does that mean literally every single person's eyeball has to put its gaze upon Jesus Christ? No, but it's certainly that it is available to everyone, that every eye can see him and, and will, and certainly... Uh, the idea of a secret rapture is gone, and the idea of it being a so quick no one knows it happened event. Uh, I don't find that in the scripture. The translation is in instantaneous. So in a moment, in a twinkling eye, you will be changed. The translation of Christians from this body to our new body is instantaneous. Twinkling of eyes really fast. Um, and so, uh, but that doesn't mean the whole event around that is in a twinkling of an eye. And so the evidence is that eyes will gaze upon it, that this will be an event that it has a, a, 
a warm-up, a, a, a warning that there will be a sixth seal. And amidst that sixth seal, uh, Revelation describes it, that the kings of the earth and the mighty men of the earth, everybody on the earth will, will wail. Um, and at that point, we're not on the earth anymore. Right? So we're not on the earth at that point. So um, they should wail because they're all in trouble for the next seven years. And really for, unless you're one of the 144,000 or uh, part of Israel, uh, you're in trouble, in deep trouble, because the day of salvation is gone. Good, we're looking forward to that study, right, of last things. We'll get there, maybe, unless the Lord comes back or something happens. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your promises from your word. We thank you for your sacrifice for the power of the resurrection and for the authority of the ascension and the application of that blood there in the temple of God. And Lord, we marvel at so great a salvation you provide for us. We pray that we might truly minister your gospel to those around us, to be agents of reconciliation, and not just people we like, but to our enemies, maybe particularly to them, to your enemies. And Lord, that we might uh, present to them the good news of your work to cover their sin, whether they accept you or not, that their sin has been paid for, but they need to accept that gift. And Lord, we pray that we might be uh, good ambassadors to them of your kingdom. And then, Lord, we do look forward, of course, to your coming. And we know what it is that is stalling that, and that is the uh, persecution of the saints and that last martyr. But Lord, we also know that while that is delayed, there is hope for salvation for others. That this is the day of salvation. And Lord, help us to have an urgency in our desire to share the gospel with those around us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.